Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Emily Bosco. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. And sometimes talk about butts. I'm sorry, and sometimes talk about butts? Correct. Is that what you said? All right, cool. I, I wasn't I wasn't entirely clear if that's what you said. Um, the enunciation was a little off, and I think the volume in my headphones is a little low today, so I'm not I'm not catching all the details. Oh, I'm um, so sorry. I'll I'll, that um, is, no, I'll be clear. No, th- yeah, but, no, 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 that's great. Yes, but, it is true. Sometimes sometimes we talk about butts. We do, we do. Glutei maximi, um, if you will. I won't. <laughs> Don't you think that'd be the plural? <laughs> Octopus. Octopi, gluteus maximus, glutei maximi, no? Uh, yeah, I suppose. Thank you which very is much. which? Which strikes me as weird <laughs> because while octopi mm-hmm. is the plural of octopus, us mm-hmm. is the plural of I. <gasps> I'm the head. Ex- I'm the head exploding emoji. <laughs> you know what I also just thought of is that. Oh wait, no, it doesn't work. Never mind. <laughs> well, no wait. When you when you cut a pie, don't you usually cut it into eight slices? No, you do four. Uh, I think I think you yeah. cut it into eight slusses. Is how that works. Four. <laughs> no, now you're inventing <laughs> words. No, but isn't that funny that octopi like you cut a pie into eight slices, so it's like. Octo for eight pie. I think the universe oh. is really, I don't know. There's synchronicity so, with these words. Oh, my phone just buzzed. Sorry. Tisk tisk. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> How could you? Which means from now on, mm-hmm. if I go to a diner and they have pie for sale and uh-huh. the pie is, you know, you know that shelf that they have where the oh, pies are like on display I. and you can see if there's a pie there. And it's cut into eight slices. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask for a slice of your cherry pie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask for the cherry octopus. Yeah, that. Let me know how that goes. Try that out, I and I want <laughs> I want to hear the response in real time from a real human being encountering that question from you. <laughs> yes, I will. I'll. It'll be. Uh, it'll be like a candid camera thing. I love it. Um, <laughs> And I will put the video up on 5050 Arts Productions Patreon page so that those of you who subscribe to us by paying at least two dollars a month. Well, the patrons, they're getting an eclectic mix of content. <laughs> well, it's because the, the, the Patreon page isn't the Patreon page for this podcast. It is the Patreon page for the Umbrella Production Company, which means they get all sorts of weird shit up there. All <laughs> right. I love calendars it. and music videos and country songs and lucky folks lucky folks random snippets of my own pondering and fortunately or unfortunately for them i am currently alone in running that patreon page which means it's all <laughs> coming from my own demented brain <laughs> heather come back <laughs> please for the love of god come back and help me do this it's 
It's spiraling. It's getting weird. It's spiraling, <laughs> but I'm grateful to be here. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 absolutely. And we're we're having a great time. Um, no, I I just I mean from a from a uh, uh, what you call it from an administrative. Um, oh yeah, I'm not helping you behind standpoint. the scenes. I'm, I'm not doing uh, that. <laughs> Yeah, it, this is this has become a solo show behind the scenes, and Correct. that is a lot of goddamn work. <laughs> uh, uh, but worth every moment. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's been great. Um, yeah. So what are um, we reading today? Is it spooky, scary? I'm feeling very. Um, I want something spooky today. Like, are after, you feeling ghostly after, today? Yeah. After we hang up, I might watch something scary. I'm just. I'm in that mood. Cool. What's yeah. what's your go to scary when you're in the mood for scary? Hmm. I mean, there, there's all these different genres, but right now I'm feeling like a 28 Days Later, World War Z, like a quality zombie movie. Probably oh 28 Lord. Days Later. That's the that's the quality zombie movie. Yeah. 28 Days Later yeah. messed me up. Oh, it, oh, it is so horrifying. I love it. I went to see <laughs> I went to see 28 Days Later in the movie theater. Uh, when it came out and I had only at the time I had only relatively recently moved to New York City. Uh, so there were a few of us from AMDA who decided to go. I was still at AMDA, uh, listener. Hi listener. How you doing? Um, for those of you who don't know, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but AMDA, uh, is the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. It's a musical theater conservatory and it's where I started my professional ish training but while i was there uh <laughs> a few of ish. us um <laughs> one weekend decided to go see a movie and uh we we decided uh we're gonna go check out 28 days later okay great so we buy tickets we go into the movie and a couple of the people who were there with us decided you know what this movie is not my kind of movie. This is too scary for me. This is too gruesome for me. I'm not sure. feeling 28 days later. Sure. We're going to go see something else. So they step out yep. and they decide they're going to go get new tickets. We get to the the end of the movie. We leave and check phones and there's a text message letting us know that they've made it into their other movie and it just started. So if we want to join them, we can come in and join them. And that is why immediately following my first viewing of 28 days later i went in to see legally blonde 2 red white and blonde red, red white and blonde <laughs> you know that's that's a really full <laughs> evening of entertainment you it get was all the zombies. oh man oh and then you get you look like the 4th of july it makes you want a hot dog <laughs> real bad <laughs> that was oh Iconic. that was such a bipolar kind of evening of movies it was oh yeah that's tonal whiplash but that's really fun yeah. I mean, did you sleep okay that night because of uh the magic of elwoods i did well Good. i don't remember so at least i i wasn't given nightmares that stuck with me now yeah. almost 20 years later um, yeah oh my god a couple of lawyer friends and i are gonna go see legally blonde the musical at my old high school next weekend i'm so excited they've never yes. heard it never seen it because I was I was talking to my one friend, she and her husband are both in law school and she's in her second year. And she said something about like being a shark. And I was like, blood in the water. And I was like, we should go see Legally Blonde. And she was like, you know, it's playing at the high school. And I was like, oh my God, the high school where I starred as the baker's wife my senior year? No way. My old stomping grounds. <laughs> 
love it. Um, but yeah, oh, so man. I think, I think that... I'm gonna go back there, and I'm like, I'm honestly probably gonna weep just like looking at the stage. Like it's gonna be very nostalgic. But also, I can't wait to see high school kids do that show. Like, how is their Vivian gonna sound? How is their L gonna sound? Like that's an impossible show vocally. I don't know. We're gonna see. It's gonna be great either way. YouTube videos of musical theater fails. Oh, um, have oh, spent years like making their <laughs> making their meat off of um, flying <laughs> failures from high Peter school Pan. productions of Peter Pan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> in recent years, high school productions of Legally Blonde have been sort of <laughs> yeah. bolstering the ranks of the. Oof. Oh yeah. Um, the, with, please, with the failed please at, let us know how it is. Freaking shoes. <laughs> Girls just trying to get that shoes. It's. I mean, all I mean, love and jokes because I could never hit that note. Like I did. That's not me. I'm not that girl. So I'm. I love and respect and am in awe of everyone who gets on a stage and belts because I'm not good at it. Yeah. No. Well, and that's that's a great show, but it's one that I'm always. Whenever I see another high school is doing a production of it, I'm like, what are you thinking? Bless them. I think it's gonna, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be great either way. It, says says me the feet. guy who's. <laughs> says me the guy whose high school senior musical was Les Mis. And who did you play? Oh, I was Valjean. <gasps> oh, he said very modestly. He said no biggie. Well, I was just know, Valjean. I was just no Valjean. big thing. He's dusting no off big his thing. shoulders. I want you all to if know you, that uh, he's dusting off if, his shoulders. Uh, <laughs> if you're if you're curious to see an 18 year old Ken uh, play Jean Valjean, just. Um, on YouTube, look for Les Mis Jefferson High School. It's it's up there. The whole production, it's up okay, there. Okay, added to the queue. I will be so I'm gonna have, <laughs> I'm gonna have tonal whiplash tonight too because I'm gonna watch 28 Days Later and then I'm gonna watch Les Mis starring 18 year old Ken Sandberg, <laughs> which like isn't as severe a shift as Legally Blonde, but it's gonna be a good night of entertainment. I'm excited. <laughs> it's that's gonna be a wild one. Uh, yeah. It's a it, it'll be a, a horror movie for a whole different reason. Um, <laughs> Anyway, oh, hi that. listeners. This is Yay, Campfire Classics, <laughs> not a high school musical fan cast. No, a literary comedy fan cast, fan cast podcast where uh, every <laughs> we're fans. week we're fans of literature. We t- we're, we're fans of literature and comedy. Uh, where every week your hosts take turns reading short stories out of the public domain. Why do we pick stories in the public domain instead of contemporary good stories? Because it's cheaper. Uh, and, and while so we we're don't reading get it, sued. Speaking of the law, yeah. Uh, and anyway, while we're while we're reading them, we um, look up strange words and comment on accidental sex jokes and racism. Um, Great. And that's our bit. That's all you need to know. But before we jump into the story, I'm going to read some fun facts about this week's author because this week I have chosen a story for Emily to read. And uh, I feel like it might need a little bit of context. English writer, trader, journalist, pamphleteer, and spy Daniel Defoe is most famous for his novel Robinson Crusoe, published in 1719, which is claimed to be second only to the Bible in its number of translations. Oh, my God. Now, wait, and English if, trader, T-R-A-D-E-R, or traitor? No, D-E-R. Oh, okay. Trader, okay. like businessman. Got it. Uh, I was like, are we however, dealing with a rebel or a, a businessman? Okay, great. Um, Both, both. actually. <laughs> 
Uh, and if you're anything like me, listener, the word from that brief distri- description that really stood out to you was the word spy. Yeah. So I'm going to start there. But the thing is, apparently he was a really good spy because there isn't a ton of information quickly available about what he did as a secret agent. There you go. <laughs> so. In 1685, oh, by the way, we're going way back for this author. He was born back in 1660. So this is going to be one of the oldest stories we've read. Um, Oh, there are going to be some fun words in here. (laughs) In 1685, Defoe, who up until now had done basically no writing, had gone into business. He had failed in business. He had racked up a debt amounting to around 1,000 pounds, which in today's money is about 220,000 pounds or like $290,000 in debt, uh, and had gotten married to a woman with a huge dowry, had decided to join up with the Monmouth Rebellion. So for those of our listeners who aren't super up on 17th century English military history, the Monmouth Rebellion was basically a bunch of Protestants who decided that they didn't like that King James II was a Catholic. Okay. So they tried and failed to overthrow the king. After this failed coup, the Bloody Assizes were a series of trials where a judge basically condemned everyone involved in this rebellion either to exile or death. However, for some reason, Defoe was fortunately pardoned. When William III and Mary were crowned king and queen of England three years later after what's known as the Glorious Revolution of 1688, Defoe became one of King William's close allies and a secret agent for the crown. So he's working as a spy of sorts for the king. Secret Uh, agent man. And then things get a little um, weird because a a, a few years later... um, when Queen Anne took over after um, William and Mary die or whatever, Queen Anne takes over and she decided to make example an example of some high profile nonconformists. And Defoe was an easy target because he had started writing, among other things, pamphlets with political opinions that Queen Anne didn't like. So... He was charged with a libel against the crown, he was fined, and he was sentenced to prison after three days in the pillory. For those of our listeners who don't know what the pillory is, that's the thing where they stick your head and hands through little holes in a piece of wood, and people stand on the street and throw fruit at you. (gasps) No! God. So he was sentenced to three days in the pillory, after which... He would be sent to prison. The thing is, he wrote a poem uh, called something about love in the pillory or something like that. I don't remember what it was called. Um, (laughs) I didn't write it down because I'm an idiot. But he, he wrote this poem and published it. And supposedly because of this poem, when he went into the pillory, people threw roses. Like they threw flowers at him. Out of respect, instead oh. of throwing the usual like fruit and rocks. That's so sweet. It's like he's on stage at the after the curtain call. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um. So he was anyway. like he was beloved, even like 
even before he was considered. So he was kind of considered a traitor, T-R-A-I-T-O-R. A little bit, although yeah. mostly just like not so much a traitor as like a political adversary of the the ruling party. Got it. Um, but the people were down but, with him because his writing was the, so good. Yeah, but the people liked him. Uh, so he spent three days in the pillory after his time there. Uh, his prison sentence was quickly negotiated away. And here's where things get kind of confusing for me, right? Um, because it seems like he negotiated away his prison time in exchange for starting to write pamphlets in favor of the queen and her political party, the Tories. Uh-huh. However, the Whigs offered to pay him a whole bunch of money to undermine the Tories in those writings. So if I understand what happened correctly, the the modern day American equivalent would be like if the Republicans let him out of prison on the condition that he would write pro-Republican articles, but the Democrats offered to pay him a whole bunch of money to write them so badly that the articles actually made the Republicans look bad. <laughs> so instead of creating Fox News content, he's actually creating Colbert Report content. Oh my God. So so he could still like claim like, well, I'm doing my best at the job, but he's just doing it really badly. But, but he's doing and getting paid by like, both and getting paid by both <laughs> sides. And he's doing it so over the top. And so like, so, so uh, uh, yeah. satirically um, right. that it pushes that, people like, away that the Whigs who are reading it understand that, oh, no, he's actually satirizing the Tories. And the the more dim-witted among the Tories are going like, yeah, he's doing his job. <laughs> I love it. What a baller move. Um, anyway, uh, he did a lot of writing that wasn't explicitly political propaganda, too. In fact, he has been credited with 545 titles. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how many he wrote because a lot of his stuff was published anonymously, covering wow. genres of adventure, mystery, horror, satire, poetry, and political pamphlet and topics like politics, crime, religion, marriage, psychology, and the supernatural. Whoa, a check of all trades. And then he died because, you know, that's what people do eventually. Um, <laughs> he was 70 years old in 1731 and he died. Um, so this week you are be going, you're going to be reading a story called The Apparition of Mrs. Veal, credited by some as the first modern ghost story. <gasps> Perfect. How did you know my mood? How did you know? I, psychic connection, you know, yes. great minds think. Come on as they now. Say. Uh, also, help I me remember it. when we're done with the story that I want to read you the alternate full title of the story. Ooh, I'd okay. read it now, but I'm pretty sure it's a major spoiler for what happens in this story. Oh, great. Which would explain why it's the alternate title and not the actual one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So oh, it's great. known by two titles. One of them is very lengthy and I'm pretty sure gives away the whole plot. Oh, great. We love it. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll remind you. So anyway, this is The Apparition of Mrs. Veal uh, by Daniel Defoe. Let's start this fire. The Apparition of Mrs. Veal by Daniel Defoe. This thing is so rare in all its circumstances and on so good authority that my reading and conversation have not given me anything like it. It is fit to gratify the most ingenious and serious inquirer. 
Mrs. Bargrave is the person to whom Mrs. Veal appeared after her death. She is my in... She is my... In after, after her death. After, yes. Already spooky. <laughs> she is my intimate friend, and I can avouch for her reputation for these 15 or 16 years on my own knowledge, and I can confirm the good character she had from her youth to the time of my acquaintance. Though since I like how many of these ghost stories from this time period start with like, all right, this weird shit happened, and I swear yeah. to God it's true. I swear, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very true. It's a nice framing device. Mm -hmm. Though, since this relation, she is calumniated by some people. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> calumniated? Yeah. Let's find out. Calumniate. To make false and defamatory statements. Yeah, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got it. So, Mrs. Bargrave is his friend. Mrs. Veal is the ghost that appeared to her. And he's saying, I can vouch for Mrs. Bargrave. Though, since that happened, she is calumniated by some people that are friends to the brother of Mrs. Veal, who appeared, who think the relation of this appearance to be a reflection and endeavor what they can to blast Mrs. Bargrave's reputation and to laugh the story out of countenance. But All right, so we've yeah. already, uh, the, 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 the spoiler that I thought was going to come from the, the original title yeah. um, has, has already basically been given. Oh, okay, okay. So cool. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and read the title right now. Yeah, what was it? The original title is... A true relation of the apparition of one Mrs. Veal the next day after her death to one Mrs. Bargrave at Canterbury the 8th of September, 1705. <laughs> doing too much. It's doing too much. <laughs> but very factually accurate to the story. Very, very accurate. So but it's also... It's also like kind of like I wonder where else the story is going to go. But I know, like right. That's not the whole story. Right. Like we started off like, so there was a ghost. And, and I'm like, okay, we're going to get all the backstory now. <laughs> so Mrs. Veal is dead and she showed up to Mrs. Yeah. Bargrave. Uh, right. Okay. So what's the. What's the story? All right. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so the narrator says. But by the circumstances thereof and the cheerful disposition of Mrs. Bargrave, notwithstanding the ill usage of a very wicked husband, there is not yet the least sign of dejection in her face, nor did I ever hear her let fall a desponding or murmuring expression. Nay, not when actually under her husband's barbarity, which I have been a witness to, and several other persons of undoubted reputation. Aw, so she had a mean husband. Yeah. Okay. Now, you must know Mrs. Veal was a maiden gentlewoman of about 30 years of age, and for some years past had been troubled with fits, which were perceived coming on by her going off from her discourse very abruptly to some impertinence. She was maintained by an only brother and kept his house in Dover. She was a very pious woman, and her brother a very sober man to all appearance, but now he does all he can to null and quash the story. Mrs. Veal right, was so brother looks out for sister, and mm -hmm. now he's going around being like, "Nah, nah, this thing Bargrave's saying is bullshit." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, also just funny that she's described as a maiden gentlewoman, which in my mind makes her middle aged, and then they're like, "She was the ripe old age of 30. I'm like, "Oh boy, that's me." <laughs> yeah, how you feeling? That's me. I occasionally have a fit or two <laughs> of my own. <laughs> um. Uh, Mrs. Veal was do do your fits do your fits present mm. themselves by you just quitting conversation in the middle? 
Yeah, it's usually that on account of my wandering <laughs> uterus. You know, that's yeah. 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 Sure. You know, typical woman things. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> it just wanders around. I never know where she is. That uterus. <laughs> um. Let's see. That seems problematic. <laughs> our next, our, our story next week is Emily Bosco in the case of the missing uterus. I'm gonna have to call Sherlock Holmes to find it. <laughs> oh God! Except that's like a freaking human organ trafficking <laughs> mystery. That's like that's an episode of CSI. That's true. It's very dark. (laughs) Mrs. Veal's circumstances were then mean. Her father did not take care of his children as he ought so that they were exposed to hardships. And Mrs. Bargrave in those days had as unkind a father, though she wanted neither food nor clothing, while Mrs. Veal wanted for both, insomuch that she would often say, Mrs. Bargrave, you are not only the best, but the only friend I have in the world, and no circumstance of life shall ever dissolve my friendship. Oh, that's true. Yeah, she haunted her. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. I'm absolutely going to haunt my besties after I'm dead. You better believe it. Have you warned them? No, they'll be cool. They'll just see me and be like, hey, you're back. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're back. I kind of had a feeling. Great. <laughs> they would often condole each other's adverse fortunes and read together Drenlin Court Upon Death. I guess that's a book. Drelin, Drelin Court Upon Death. Oh, and other good books. (laughs) Clearly it's a book. And so, like two Christian friends, they comforted each other under their sorrow. Drelincourt Upon Death uh, is a book. Oh, uh, so apparently, so it is, it's a, it's a um, thing about death by a French author named Charles Delincourt. Um, and apparently reading it was what inspired Defoe, in part, to write this story. Oh, there you go. A little shout out. That's nice. Yep. Okay. Sometime after, Mr. Veal's friends got him a place in the custom house at Dover, which occasioned Mrs. Veal, by little and little, to fall off from her intimacy with Mrs. Bargrave. Though there was never any such thing as a quarrel, but an indifferency came on by degrees, till at last Mrs. Bargrave had not seen her in two years and a half, though above a twelve-month of the time Mrs. Bargrave hath been absent from Dover, and this last half-year has been in Canterbury about two months of the time, dwelling in a house of her own. In this house, on the 8th of September, 1,705, she was si- <laughs> that's a... Right. I was like, oh, yeah, that's 1705. 1705. It's just a funny way to say it. <laughs> she was sitting alone in the forenoon, thinking over her unfortunate life and arguing herself into a due resignation to Providence, though her condition seemed hard. And, said um, she... Sitting alone in the forenoon? Isn't that just morning? Yeah. Yeah, forenoon is the morning. Forenoon? Like, why you gotta be a dick about it? It's the morning. Right. <laughs> It's a September morning. Saying. They're they're making it very. They're making all these times very complicated. Well, no, but I'm more concerned about what she's doing, arguing herself into a due resignation to providence. So she's saying, like, <laughs> I'll just sit here and die. Like, I'll just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just gonna waste away. Or <laughs> life's hard. I'm just gonna sit here until yeah, I'm dead. Until I'm dead. <laughs> it's the lamest suicide attempt ever. <laughs> just waste away. And, said she, I have been provided for hitherto, and doubt not, but I shall be still, and am well satisfied that my afflictions shall end when it is most fit for me. (laughs) And then took up her sewing work, which she had no sooner (laughs) done, but she hears a knocking at the door. 
So I guess she's kind of just like, I'm going to chill. I'm just going to chill. Yeah. She went to see who was there, and this proved to be Mrs. Veal, her old friend, who was in a riding habit. At that moment of time, the clock struck 12 at noon. There we go. This was all before noon, and now it's noon. All before noon. Huh. Madam. Ghost appearing at noon. That's unusual. I know. You'd think it'd be midnight. Spookier. I think it'd be midnight. This, she's brave. She's like, broad daylight? I don't care. I'm coming. I got it. I don't care who sees a- me. I'm well. She's a good guy ghost. She can appear yeah, during the right. days. She's during a the daylight. She's Casper. <laughs> She's a friendly ghost. <laughs> Madam says Mrs. Bargrave, "I'm surprised to see you. You have been so long a stranger." But told her she was glad to see her and offered to salute her, which Mrs. Veal complied with till their lips almost touched. Hey, come on now. Whoa. Yes. They are good friends. Ah, oh, we love to see it. We love to see it. History will say they were roommates. And then Mrs. Veal drew her hand across her own eyes and said, I am not very well, and so waved it. She told Mrs. Bargrave she was going on a journey and had a great mind to see her first. But, says Mrs. Bargrave, how can you take a journey alone? I am amazed at it because I know you have a fond brother. Oh, says Mrs. Veal, I gave my brother the slip and came away because I had so great a desire to see you before I took my journey. Oh, so Mrs. Bargrave went in with her into another room within the first, and Mrs. Veal sat her down in an elbow chair in which Mrs. Bargrave was sitting when she heard Mrs. Veal knock. Then, says Mrs. Veal, my dear friend, I am come to renew our old friendship again and beg your pardon for my breach of it, and if you can forgive me, you are the best of women. Oh, says Mrs. Bargrave, do not mention such a thing. I have not had an uneasy thought about it. What did you think of me? says Mrs. Veal. Says Mrs. Bargrave, I thought you were like the rest of the world and that prosperity had made you forget yourself and me. Oh. This is this is such a like <laughs> sweet, wholesome little ghost story. It really is. I'm like, women, man, we're emotionally intelligent. They're both like, <laughs> no worries, no worries. <laughs> Hey, I'm then, sorry I've been away for so long. It's cool. Don't it's worry cool. about it. You, you know what? You glowed up and you left me behind. And girl, that's that's your right. <laughs> like they're just so supportive. <laughs> then Mrs. Beal, Veal. Then Mrs. Veal reminded Mrs. Bargrave of the many friendly offices she did in her former days, and much of the conversation they had with each other in the times of their adversity. What books they read, and what comfort in particular they received from Drelincourt's Book of Death which was the best, she said, on the subject ever wrote. <laughs> so cute. He's a, he's a, such a little fanboy. <laughs> she also mentioned Dr. Sherlock and two Dutch books, which were translated, wrote upon death, and several others. But Drelincourt, she said, had the clearest notions of death and of the future state of any who handled that subject. Then she asked Mrs. Bargrave whether she had Drelincourt. She said, yes, says Mrs. Veal, fetch it. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> this scared. is weird. I'm scared hey, of what's going. Hey, so uh, <laughs> I'm dead. You want to get that book about dead people? I'm curious what's about to happen right. to me. Right. Or like, I'm going, I'm about to go on this journey. Could you get that? Could you get that, that sacred text on dying? <laughs> <laughs> and so, it's a travel Bar- guide. <laughs> right. Things to see on your way to the afterlife. And so Mrs. Bargrave goes upstairs and brings it down. Says Mrs. Veal, Dear Mrs. Bargrave, if the eyes of our faith were as open as the eyes of our body, we should see numbers of angels about us for our guard. The notions we have of heaven now are nothing like what it is. As Drelincourt says, 
Therefore, be comforted under your afflictions and believe that the mighty and believe that the Almighty has a particular regard to you and that your afflictions are marks of God's favor. And when they have done the business they are sent for, they shall be removed from you. And believe me, my dear friend, believe what I say to you. One minute of future happiness will infinitely reward you for all your sufferings. For I can never believe, and she claps her hand upon her knee with great earnestness, which indeed ran through most of her discourse, that ever God will suffer you to spend all your days in this afflicted state. But be assured that your afflictions shall leave you, or you them, in a short time. Oh, God. Oh, God. Did you come in here to try to convert me? Right? This is sounding Come very... on, Mrs. Veal. What the shit? Right? This is sounding very... Do you have a minute to talk about our Lord and Savior? <laughs> she sp- I sure do. Let's go look for him. <laughs> she spake in that pathetical and heavenly manner that Mrs. Bargrave wept several times and was so deeply affected with it. Then... Okay, so that was all Mrs. Veal saying that. That yes. was all Mrs. Veal yes. being okay. super Jesus-y, yeah. Yes, yes, okay. Then Mrs. Veal mentioned Dr. Kendrick's ascetic, at the end of which he gives an account of the lives of the primitive Christians. Their pattern she recommended to our imitation and said, Their conversation was not like this of our age, for now, says she, there is nothing but vain, frothy discourse, which is far different from theirs. Theirs was to edification and to build one another up in faith, so that they were not as we are, nor nor are we as they were. But, said she, we ought to do as they did say. There was a hearty friendship among them, but where is it now to be found? Says Mrs. Bargrave, It is hard indeed to find a true friend these days. Says Mrs. Veal, Mr. Norris has a fine copy of verses called Friendship in Perfection, which I wonderfully admire. (laughs) Have you seen the book? Says Mrs. Veal. No, says Mrs. Bargrave, but I have the verses of my own writing out. Have you, says Mrs. Veal, then fetch them, which she did from above the (laughs) stairs, (laughs) and offered them to Mrs. Veal to read, who refused and waved the thing, saying, holding down her head would make it ache, and then desiring Mrs. Bargrave to read them to her, which she did. As they were admiring friendship, Mrs. Veal said, Dear Mrs. Bargrave, I shall love you forever. In these verses, there is twice used the word Elysian. Ah, says Mrs. Veal, these poets have such names for heaven. She would often draw her hand across her own eyes and say, Mrs. Bargrave, do not you think I am mightily impaired by my fits? (laughs) No, says Mrs. Bargrave, I think you look as well as ever I knew you. (laughs) She's just swooning over this talk of heaven. That's not exactly a compliment. (laughs) Right. No. No. You're dead. You look <laughs> right. as well as ever I knew you. Right. So you look about the same, <laughs> you know, corpse-like. <laughs> so this is this is strange. I'm But wondering, I don't think she knows she's dead. She doesn't know she's dead. No. no. Yeah. Mrs. Veal no, no, just no, no, showed no. up at her door and she's like, I haven't seen you forever. No. But, you look but the, the same. audience knows, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. leading me to be like, okay, so was this intended as a ghost story or because we've taken the like the the surprise out of it to a certain right, extent right. we've taken the scare out of it was yeah, this not intended a yeah. as a like morality story told from the point of view of a ghost right like she's in, as someone who's about to pass on first she has to share her wisdom of how to be in the yeah. world yeah cuz yeah, it seems this, like she's just quoting all these authors that Daniel Defoe loved yeah, this is so, this is feeling much more like a philosophical pontification yeah, than yeah. it is like a ghost story because 
we got the spoilers in the first paragraph. Right. <laughs> and in the well, and in the title, so clearly in the in the title, if in you the read proposed the, full one, yeah. the proposed title, yeah. So clearly, yeah. he didn't care about. Yeah, I think it's not about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested, but I, I love that it's written by a man and it's about like female friendship. I'm like, come yeah. on, come on, Bechdel test. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. This the movie version of this definitely it's passing. passes. It's passing like with flying colors. All right, let's see. After, so she's like, don't I look different? And Mrs. Bargrave's like, nah. <laughs> after, <laughs> after this discourse, which the apparition put in much finer words than Mrs. Bargrave said she could pretend to, and as much more than she can remember, for it cannot be thought that an hour and three quarters conversation could all be retained, though the main of it, she thinks she does. She said to Mrs. Bargrave she would have her write a letter to her brother and tell him she would have him give rings to such and such and that there was a purse of gold in her cabinet and that she would have two broad pieces given to her cousin Watson. Okay. Talking right, at this. So she's, she's got, she's got Mrs. Bargrave basically writing up a will. Her will. Yeah. Talking at this rate, Mrs. Bargrave thought that a fit was coming upon her, and so placed herself on a chair just before her knees to keep her from falling to the ground if her fits should occasion it. For the elbow chair, she thought, would keep her from falling on either side. Smart. <laughs> and to divert Mrs. Veal, as she thought, took hold of her gown sleeve several times and commended it. Mrs. Veal told her it was a scoured silk and newly made up. But... But for all this, Mrs. Veal persisted in her request and told Mrs. Bargrave she must not deny her, and she would have her tell her brother all their conversation when she had the opportunity. Dear Mrs. Veal, says Mrs. Bargrave, this seems so impertinent that I cannot tell how to comply with it, and what a mortifying story will our conversation be to a young gentleman. Why, says Mrs. Bargrave, it is much better, methinks, to do it yourself. No, says Mrs. Veal, though it seems impertinent to you now, you will see more reasons for it hereafter. <laughs> Mrs. Bargrave then, to satisfy her importunity, was going to fetch a pen and ink, but Mrs. Veal said, Let it alone now, but do it when I am gone, but you must be sure to do it, which was one of the last things she enjoined her at parting, and so she promised her. Huh. Okay. Then Mrs. Veal asked for Mrs. Bargrave's daughter. She said she was not at home. But if you have a mind to see her, says Mrs. Bargrave, I'll send for her. Do, says Mrs. Veal, on which she left her and went to a neighbor's to see her. Oh, okay. <laughs> She's making her rounds. <laughs> All right. And by the time Mrs. Bargrave was returning, Mrs. Veal was got without the door in the street in the face of the beast market on a Saturday, which is market day, and stood ready to part as soon as Mrs. Bargrave came to her. She asked her why she was in such haste. She said she must be going, though perhaps she might not go her journey till Monday. And told, she's really scheduling, she's really scheduling this trip to the beyond. <laughs> she's going to squeeze everyone well, in. Well, I mean, it's, you know, if she died suddenly and unexpectedly, she's probably got some important shit to do. That's true. That's very true. Um, so if you suddenly died and mm -hmm. became a ghost and you mm -hmm. had like 72 hours to sort things out to reach out to people Aww. what would you like like if if we were having this conversation right who who would you want me to send messages to interesting wait so i've come back as a ghost and i have 72 hours to do or say whatever before i move to the beyond yeah to like talk to okay. people send messages uh you know okay. divvy up your divvy up your shit 
do I have a corporeal form? Because whether I have a body affects what I'm going to do in those 72 hours, if you know what I mean. Well, <laughs> she has been actively avoiding being touched. Okay, okay. So so I'm I'm guessing that if she has a body, because her she, uh, uh, Mrs. Bargrave did touch her dress, her sleeves. <gasps> right. So I'm guessing she has a body, but she probably feels like a corpse. Like she's probably right. cold. Damn. All right, so nookies <laughs> off the table. <laughs> so we're going to scratch that. <laughs> well, that just narrowed my options a lot. I mean, what, am I going to talk for 72 hours? <laughs> no, I would, um, oh, man. I mean, I'd, I'd be like, you know, tell my mom and dad it'll be okay, and I love them. All, you know, all the, all the typical stuff. Uh, I would love someone to retrieve my fanfiction.net password so that those stories could like be revived and see the light of day again because I used to write anime fanfiction in high school and like not to brag, but it was very popular. Dear <laughs> listener. It looks like I dropped a bomb on him. He's dear like, listener, <laughs> please, please, for the love of God, send us an email to 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or a message on any of the Campfire Classics <laughs> social media. Please send us this email and and use the use the phrase um show us the stories. But no, better yet, read us the stories. Because if we get enough emails saying read us the stories, then perhaps next week's episode can be us reading Emily Bosco's anime fan fiction. Oh my God, what have I done? What have I done on this day? <laughs> the only that person is... I have showed it to is my best friend from home, who I have been best friends with for 16 years. And even she had to like beat it out of me. <laughs> no, this is, but you know this what? is I... my, my sincere, honest request to you, the listener. <laughs> Please let us know that you want this as much as I do. <laughs> they honestly, they were quite good. I, I, they were quite good. All right, we'll revisit this. We'll revisit this. <laughs> Let's get back to Mrs. V. Let's get Mrs. back to the story. Okay. <laughs> oh God, my face is so red right now at that prospect. Oh my God. Okay. All right. <laughs> Woo. So. She told Mrs. Bargrave she hoped she should see her again at her cousin Watson's before she went whither she was going. That's Mrs. Veal. Then she said she would take her leave of her and walked from Mrs. Bargrave in her view till a turning interrupted the sight of her, which was three quarters after one in the afternoon. Mrs. Veal died the 7th of September at 12 o'clock at noon of her fits. Oh, God. And had not above four hours senses before her death, in which time she received the sacrament. The next day after Mrs. Veal's appearance, being Sunday. Oh, so she wasn't already dead when she appeared to her. That was the yes, last was. day of. Oh, she was? She appeared on September 8th. Oh, okay, okay, okay. She died on September 7th. Oh, God. How do you remember that? Okay, great. Both at 12 noon. Both at 12 noon. Got it. Um, got it. So, the next day after Mrs. Yale's appearance, being Sunday, Mrs. Bargrave was mightily indisposed with a cold and sore throat that she could not go out that day. But on Monday morning, she sends a person to Captain Watson's to know if Mrs. Veal was there. Huh, that switch from past tense to present tense was interesting. It's the whole been thing doing was past that. Yeah. It's been doing that a bit, like in conversation, 
it's been like, so she says. So she and says, then she right. Says, and, and then, then Mrs. Bargrave says. Right. It's very funny. Yeah. So it's like she was mightily indisposed, but on Monday morning, she sends a person to Captain Watson's. It feels very much like, I don't know, like you're gossiping. So then she says to him, and then I say to him, you know, it's very like, it's funny. Yeah. It's, it's got a, it's got a, well, which makes sense because this is, this is a story in the vein of, I'm going to tell you a story. You're not going to believe right. this shit. Right. You'll never believe it. Right. Right. Yeah. That's fun. Um, so on Monday morning, she sends a person to Captain Watson's to know if Mrs. Veal was there. They wondered at Mrs. Bargrave's inquiry and sent her word she was not there, nor was expected. At this answer, Mrs. Bargrave told the maid she had certainly mistook the name or made some blunder. And though she was ill, she put on her hood and went herself to Captain Watson's, though she knew none of the family, to see if Mrs. Veal was there or not. They said they wondered at her asking, for that she had not been in town. Oh, okay. They said they wondered at her asking, for that she had not been in town. They were sure if she had, she would have been there. Says Mrs. Bargrave, I am sure she was with me on Saturday almost two hours. They said it was impossible, for they must have seen her if she had. In comes Captain Watson. <laughs> there it is again. In comes <laughs> Captain Watson while they were in dispute and said that Mrs. Veal was certainly dead and the escutcheons were making. Escutcheons? Yeah, what is Escuchians? that? Something to do with like the undertakers, maybe? Like they're already preparing her body, maybe? The uh, the morticians? Escutcheon. A shield or emblem bearing a coat of arms. A flat piece of metal for protection and often ornamentation around a keyhole, door handle, or light switch. Interesting. Okay. Huh. Let's see a further context. I mean, it sounds to me like, I don't know, coat of arms, like maybe they're going to put it on her casket or something. Yeah. that Like that's they're already probably... making the thing. Yeah. He's like, they're, she's dead and they're already making the stuff for it, basically. Let's see if we get more context. Yeah. This strangely surprised Mrs. Bargrave when she sent to the person immediately who had the care of them and found it true. Of the care of the escutcheons. Okay. Then she related the whole story to Captain Watson's family and what gown she had on and how striped and that Mrs. Veal told her that it was scoured. Then Mrs. Watson cried out, you have seen her indeed for none knew but Mrs. Veal and myself that the gown was scoured. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> <A> secret code. <laughs> and Mrs. Watson owned that she described the gown exactly. For, said she, I helped her to make it up. This Mrs. Watson blazed all about the town and avouched the demonstration of truth of Mrs. Bargrave seeing Mrs. Veal's apparition. And Captain Watson carried two gentlemen immediately to Mrs. Bargrave's house to hear the relation from her own mouth. Okay, so now we're getting back to the, the original thing that he said at the beginning of the story, which is like the reputation of Mrs. Bargrave was, in, right. was constantly in question. People didn't believe her. Yeah. So now, so now, uh, the cousin is bringing people to be like, right. okay, tell it to us again. It's right, but like it's true. It's true. Her dress had this particular stitch or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um. So Watson carried two gentlemen immediately to Mrs. Bargrave's house to hear the relation from her own mouth, and when it spread so fast that gentlemen and persons of quality, the judicious and skeptical part of the world, flocked in upon her. It at last became such a task that she was forced to go out of the way. 
for they were, in general, extremely satisfied of the truth of the thing, and plainly saw that Mrs. Bargrave was no hypochondriac, for she always appears with such a cheerful air and pleasing mien that she has gained the favor and esteem of all the gentry, and it is thought a great favor if they can but get the relation from her own mouth. I sh- uh, oh, I should have told you before that Mrs. Veal told Mrs. Bargrave that her sister and brother-in-law were just come down from London to see her. <laughs> he's like, I forgot a detail. <laughs> oh, shit, sorry, bad narrator. Uh, Let she, me back up. He's like, uh, by the way, uh, says Mrs. Bargrave, how came you to order matters so strangely? It could not be helped, said Mrs. Veal, and her brother and sister did come to see her and entered the town of Dover just as Mrs. Veal was expiring. Mrs. Bargrave asked her whether she would drink some tea. Says Mrs. Veal, I do not care if I do, but I'll warrant you this mad fellow, meaning Mrs. Bargrave's husband, has broke all your trinkets. But, says Mrs. Bargrave, I'll get something to drink in for all that. But Mrs. Veal waved it and said, it is no matter, let it alone. And so it passed. Yeah, so she keeps turning down, she keeps turning down anything that oh. would force her to interact with with a physical Other. piece of the world. Uh, yeah, right. Got it. Got it. All the time I sat with Mrs. Bargrave, which was some hours, she recollected fresh sayings of Mrs. Veal. And one material thing more, she told Mrs. Bargrave, that old Mr. Breton allowed Mrs. Veal ten pounds a year, which was a secret, and unknown to Mrs. Bargrave till Mrs. Veal told her. Mrs. Bargrave never varies in her story, which puzzles those who doubt of the truth or are unwilling to believe it. A servant in the neighbor's yard adjoining to Mrs. Bargrave's house heard her talking to somebody an hour of the time Mrs. Veal was with her. Mrs. Bargrave went out to her her next neighbor's the very moment she parted with Mrs. Veal and told her what ravishing conversation she had had with an old friend and told the whole of it. (laughs) <laughs> How convenient. So here's our whole transcript of the whole conversation. <laughs> Just in case it comes up, I right, think it's right, really right. important. You, This sounds yeah. like a woman who is trying really hard to establish an alibi. I was just going to say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Drellencourt's Book of Death is, since this happened, brought up strangely. <laughs> and it is to be observed that, notwithstanding all the trouble and fatigue Mrs. Bargrave has undergone upon this account, she never took the value of a farthing, nor suffered her daughter to take anything of anybody, and therefore can have no interest in telling the story. Oh, got it. No financial interest. Yeah, there's there's no reason for there's her no to reason be making this up. She's not right. taking money for it. Right, right. But Mr. Veal does what he can to stifle the matter, and said he would see Mrs. Bargrave. But yet it is certain matter of fact that he has been at Captain Watson's since the death of his sister, and yet never went near Mrs. Bargrave. And some of his friends report her to be a liar and that she knew of Mr. Breton's 10 pounds a year. But the person who pretends to say so has the reputation to be a notorious liar among persons whom I know to be of undoubted credit. Now, Mr. Veal is more of a gentleman than to say she lies, but says a bad husband has crazed her. Oh, the gaslighting, the gaslighting. But she needs only present herself and it will effectually confute that pretense. Mr. Veal says he asked his sister on her deathbed whether she had a mind to dispose of anything, and she said no. Now the things which Mrs. Veal's apparition would have disposed of were so trifling, and nothing of justice aimed at in the disposal, that the design of it appears to me to be only in order to make Mrs. Bargrave satisfy the world of the reality thereof as to what she had seen and heard, and to secure her reputation among the reasonable and understanding part of mankind. 
Okay, oh, so, Mrs. so Veal, Mrs. Veal came and yeah. said nothing of importance, right. but it's all just verifiable enough right. that that Mrs. Bargrave should be able to prove that she's yes. not crazy. Oh, even after death, she's like setting her girl up for success. Looking out, <laughs> looking out for a friend. Oh, so nice. And then again, and then again, Mr. Veal owns that there was a purse of gold, but it was not found in her cabinet, but in a comb box. This looks improbable, for that Mrs. Watson owned that Mrs. Veal was so very careful of the key of her cabinet that she would trust nobody with it. And if so, no doubt she would not trust her gold out of it. And Mrs. Veal's often drawing her hands over her eyes and asking Mrs. Bargrave whether her fits had not impaired her looks to me as if she did it on purpose to remind Mrs. Bargrave of her fits, to prepare her not to think it strange that she should put upon that she should put her upon writing to her brother to dispose of rings and gold, which looks so much like a dying person's request, and it took accordingly with Mrs. Bargrave as the effect of her fits coming upon her, and was one of the many instances of her wonderful love to her and care of her, that she should not be affrighted, which indeed appears in her whole management, particularly in her coming to her in the daytime, waving the salutation, and when she was alone, and then the manner of her parting to prevent a second attempt to salute her. Oh, hmm. well, first of all, that would that sent that entire paragraph was one sentence, so that was a journey. For oh to Lord, read. yeah, but also, so Mrs. Veal did everything to like put Mrs. Bargrave at ease and give her information that would like have her be believed when she told the story. She was actively trying to not be the asshole ghost that we usually expect from ghost stories. Right. The Scrooge ghosts. She's like, I'm not busting into your room at midnight and being like, I'm going to just be nice (laughs) and I'm not going to let you touch my cold ethereal body. And (laughs) oh, it's so nice. (laughs) I love women. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why Mr. Veal should think this relation a reflection, as it is plain he does by his endeavoring to stifle it, I cannot imagine. A reflection? Do they mean like a reflection like from a mirror? Like, what is he saying it is instead of a ghost? Not real. like Just not real. Like hallucination? Hallucination, yeah. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Um, Now, why Mr. Yeah. Now, why Mr. Veal should think this relation a reflection, as it is plain he does by his endeavoring to stifle it, I cannot imagine, because the generality believe her to be a good spirit. Her discourse was so heavenly. Her two great errands were to comfort Mrs. Bargrave in her affliction, and to ask her forgiveness for her breach of friendship, and with a pious discourse to encourage her. So that, after all, to suppose that Mrs. Bargrave could hatch such an invention as this from Friday noon to Saturday noon, supposing that she knew of Mrs. Veal's death the very first moment, without jumbling circumstances and without any interest, too, she must be more witty, fortunate, and wicked, too, than any indifferent person, I dare say, will allow. (laughs) Right, he's like, it would have to be a real feat to do that. I asked Mrs. Bargrave several times if she was sure she felt the gown. She answered modestly, If my senses be relied on, I am sure of it. I asked her if she heard a sound when she clapped her hand upon her knee. She said she did not remember that she did, but said she appeared to be as much of substance as I who did talk with her. And I may, said she, be as soon persuaded that your apparition is talking to me now as that I did not really see her, for I was under no manner of fear and received her as a friend and parted with her as such. I would not, says she, give one farthing to make anyone believe it, 
I have no interest in it. Nothing but trouble is entailed upon me for a long time, for aught I know. <laughs> She's like, this is messing up my life. Why would I ask this is, for this? This is way more work <laughs> yeah. than it's worth. Why would I be lying about this? Why would I do this? Right. And had it not come to light by accident, it would never have been made public. But now, she says, she will make her own private use of it and keep herself out of the way as much as she can. And so she has done since. She says she had a gentleman who came 30 miles to hear her. She says she had a gentleman who came 30 miles to her to hear the relation and that she had told it to a room full of people at the time. Several particular gentlemen have had the story from Mrs. Bargrave's own mouth. Oh, I hope she's charging for that shit. Yeah, I hope she's making a nice living off this now. But but she's but she's not. That's the she whole said point. She w- she's not right. she making said she any money off of it. Oh, the thing that has very much affect. Oh, the thing. Mm. This thing has very much affected me, and I am as well satisfied as I am of the best grounded matter of fact. And why we should dispute matter of fact, because we cannot solve things of which we have no certain or demonstrative notions, seems strange to me. Mrs. Bargrave's authority and sincerity alone would have been undoubted in any other case. The end. Huh. Interesting little non-ghost story ghost story. This, I believe, marks the third time I have tried to give you a ghost story. (laughs) You're right. We keep getting And somehow failed to give you a scary story. (laughs) That's okay. I really, I enjoyed it. I... Honestly, it is pretty amazing and like progressive to me that this story written by a man and what you you said this is like one of the oldest stories you've read on the podcast, right? Uh, like it's one old. Of, I, yeah. I'd have to I'd have to double check, but like to, very to know for sure the oldest. But it's very rare that we do anything from before like eighteen fifty. Yeah, right. But it's very like awesome to me that the the crux of the whole story i mean the ghost part of it is almost incidental the crux of the story is literally a bunch of people were gaslighting this woman and telling her she was crazy but i i swear like her character is unimpeachable she's telling the truth she has the evidence to prove it like this lady is not lying and i'm just like it's, it seems like the whole story is written just in defense of mrs bargrave and i just yeah. love that that's really what it's about he's like he's basically like hashtag believe women in yeah. 16 whatever this is which is so cool <laughs> Yeah. And also, well, like, and it's and two, it is it's two a, female it's a, characters like not talking about men is great. Passes the Bechdel yeah. test, like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a story about the relationship between these two women who yeah. sort of fell apart and and decide yeah. to reconnect. Yeah, well, and it's so sweet, and and just it's nice the fact that like she. Well, I guess her maybe her cousin Watson was okay, but that she had a a fa- oh, I can't remember now what Mrs. Veal's father was like, but her husband was abusive, and so like when she knows and she's about to die, the person she goes to, the person who's the closest to who she trusts with her affairs, is actually her close female friend, even one that she hasn't been close to recently. Like right. that 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 closeness still remains, and like I mean, I have friends like that who you're very close, and then you kind of drift away from each other for a couple of years, but when you get together, it's, it, it feels the same. And I'm always like, those are the really, those are the juicy friendships that have so much sort of foundation that you can, you know, lose touch and come back together with no resentment and like pick up where you left off. It's like a great thing. Yeah. 
Oh, I love it. I'm so full of feelings. I I want to go call all my girls. (laughs) I want to go call all my ladies right now. (laughs) I loved it. Well, you can you can do that after you're done. Well, or before you watch 28 Days Later. You know, I might do it as a palate cleanser in between 28 Days Later and Les Mis. Cool. So there we go. Yeah. Yeah, Great. It's going to be an interesting night. And it's already 10 o'clock. So I better I better go get on it. And then you can ask all of them to uh, do a quick proofread of your fan fictions to see which is the best one to be read on next week's episode of Campfire Classics. No, I think I think if if they're read, they need to be read exactly as I wrote them at the age of 16, like errors and all. They need to be preserved in that moment in time. I'm not I'm not saying edit them. I'm saying help you pick which one or ones will be presented. (laughs) I mean, there are only I think there are only three. But I do remember them being quite popular. So I'm going to go Excellent. now. I'm going to go see if I can dig up that login information. Oh, my God. This is insane. Yep. Yeah, we need this. We need this. Uh, oh. So, dear listener, how do, you know I hope- how do you know they're public domain? How do you know I'm not going to make you pay me? Uh, I don't know if they're public domain or not. Uh, I You might have the copyright to it, but... Um, I have this I sneaking remember. suspicion that I, if anyone owns the copyright, I I know them and could probably call in a favor. <laughs> I don't remember how, <laughs> how industrious or business savvy of a 16-year-old I was about my literary creations, but uh, I think they were just I actually there think to... That, <laughs> I actually think that, strictly speaking, if it's been published at all, even if it's only been published online, there is <laughs> at least a um, a short-term copyright on it. <laughs> oh, God. Um <laughs> I think after 15 years, that's expired. <laughs> I think we're good. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know what all the rules are. Oh my that's God, we, not have to, we have to stop talking about this. I'm just, I'm, I'm just hoping you're going to forget all about this conversation. Okay, bye, oh, everyone. That's, bye. bye. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen <laughs> because uh, because this all made it into the episode. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. What have I done? Um, so, uh, dear listener, I hope you enjoyed that story. Um, I, uh, I hope you enjoyed that, that sort of quirky Casper, the friendly ghost ghost story. Um, it was charming and delightful and, um, I liked it. I had fun. Yeah. It was a very peaceful evening of ghost stories. I, I like love that. it. I love it. <laughs> so send us an email. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Uh, and in that email or to 5050rsproduction at gmail.com or your message to any of our social media, uh, Campfire Classics. Um, include this week's secret passcode, which unsurprisingly is fan fiction. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, that's it for me Emily you got anything to share before we sign off I regret all my choices all right it is important (laughs) to live with regret (laughs) those are our words of wisdom (laughs) until next week (laughs) this has been campfire classics where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf bye (laughs) 